I read a stat this past week saying that Americans spend an average of two hours and three minutes on social media a day. Phone usage in general, whether it be listening to podcasts, reading the news, checking email, is about five and a half hours per day. Now, I wish I could stand here and tell you that my stats are well below the national average, but I'd be lying. And right, we use our phones for work. Some of us read our Bibles on our phones. We keep in touch with loved ones. But let's pretend that after an hour of Bible reading, and I think I'm being generous here, and let's say two hours of connecting with loved ones, most of what we're consuming on our phones is probably not enriching our lives. And much of it might even be doing harm to our souls. My goal this morning is not to make us feel guilty about our digital consumption, although some of us, myself included, maybe should, or our use or abuse of digital media is just one of the ways we're allowing ourselves to be shaped and formed by something other than Christ. The reality is that humanity has been distracted, preoccupied, or enslaved by something for our entire existence. Scripture gives us some insight as to what's behind these distractions and enslavements. None other than the powers and authorities, those spiritual beings who despise God and his good creation, and it is our flesh or our fallen humanity that falls prey to their deception. The biblical writers often use the metaphor of a potter and a lump of clay. The potter being God and the clay being his people. And the question I'm asking this morning and what we'll be wrestling with for the next two months is right in the title of our sermon this morning, Whose Hands Are in the Clay? In other words, what are we allowing to shape and form who we are? Dallas Willard was a Christian philosopher and theologian. He wrote and spoke on what is traditionally referred to as spiritual formation throughout his life. And he says in his book, and I have a quote for this, he says in his book, Renovation of the Heart, the human spirit is an inescapable, fundamental aspect of every human being. And it takes on whichever character it has from the experiences and the choices that we have lived through or made in our past. This is what it means for it to be formed. In other words, whether we choose it or not, every single one of us is being shaped or formed. Our spirit or our heart, the center of all human existence, the seat of all physical, spiritual, emotional, and mental life is becoming something. It's becoming something. It's why Jesus says in Luke 6.45 that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks, and dare I say, his body moves. It's also why Proverbs 4.22 tells us to watch over our heart with all diligence, for from its flow the springs of life. Spiritual formation is happening it's just a matter of whether we're allowing God to do it or some other entity whose hands are in the clay. 
The definition of spiritual formation that we'll be working with over the course of the next two months and how I believe we should understand it moving forward, and I'm borrowing a little bit of language from Dallas Willard, is as follows. And I have a slide for this. Spiritual formation is the things we do, are the things we do, spiritual disciplines or habits, to create time and space for us to be with Jesus, abide with or remain in, so that we become like Jesus and do what Jesus did in our own context so that the world might experience the love of Christ and catch a glimpse of what God is like. This is where we'll be heading over the course of the next two months. And truth be told, it will be something that shows up regularly here at Redeemer Fellowship. To be citizens of heaven, of the kingdom of God, our lives need to be shaped and formed by the person to whom we pledge our allegiance. It's what the Apostle Paul means when he says that we'll be conformed to the image of his son. And so that's where we're heading. That's what we're going to be wrestling with over the next few months. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 14 and 15. And we're also going to be in Galatians 5 this morning. Some of those passages are in your bulletin, but we weren't able to fit everything in there. So like I said, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up. Or if you use the phone on your Bible, um, the Bible on your phone, I would encourage you to look there as well. And so this first section, Help to Abide, and I have a simple outline that I'm going to be following um, that's also in your bulletin. Our two main passages for this morning will be John 14 through 15, Galatians 5. And just really quick, this is not necessarily going to be an exegetical verse-by-verse sermon, but we will be wrestling with the text as we allow the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts. So a little bit of context before we jump into the text in John 14 and 15. So Jesus had just had his last meal with his disciples. They were celebrating the Passover together. He washed their feet. He sent Judas away, the one who betrayed Jesus, knowing full well his plan. And then he told them that where he was going, they would not be able to follow. So where I'm going, you will not be able to follow. And so as you can imagine, there was probably some uneasiness that was filling the room at this particular point. It starts out like this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Peter was the most vocal and his heart was clearly troubled, as you can see from the passage right before this, where he says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. But Jesus is aware of the tension in the room. And so he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. He says, believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the, you know the way to where I am going. And so what Jesus is doing here is, is I think of like my children when, when one of them have a bad dream. Or if you have kids and they have a bad dream, you go up there and you reassure them that it's going to be okay. That there is in fact no monster under the bed or in the closet. That you are there to protect them. And if need be, you'll come back to help them out again. Should they be scared again. He's reassuring them. And then he goes on in verses 13 through 14. He says this, not 13 through 14. Um, 
Just follow me here. It's like, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen me. Then Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I said to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so we're not going to go into details here. But simply put, Jesus is inviting his disciples to pray. And he's promising that those prayers are, in fact, heard. And that as we draw deeper into relationship with him, the will and desire of God will begin shaping our own wills and our own desires so that our prayers and the heart of our prayers will begin looking more and more like the prayers of Christ. What's happening in this passage is he's setting up the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's explaining, like, I'm going away, but I'm still going to be here with you through my Holy Spirit. And he's about to get into that in just a few seconds. And he's saying that when you have the Spirit, you are going to have a direct connection to me, a direct link to the heavenly places, to the Father, to myself, and you will experience peace. Let's see what he says here in verses 15 and following. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, one who is just like me, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever keeps my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so Judas, not Iscariot, asked him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How will you reveal yourself to us, show yourself to us? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the words that you hear are not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so like I said, Jesus is promising the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in this short conversation with Judas, he is saying that his presence will be made known to them or evidenced to them by their own obedience and love for him, proving the presence of the Spirit in their lives. What's happening here is Jesus is continuing the the idea that, that God will be with his people. He's teaching something that is so massively important for us to understand, that God will be with us. The Holy Spirit is the presence of Almighty God residing in us, both individually and corporately as the body of Christ. 
That is an important truth that we need to hold on to, especially as we travel through a life of chaos, of frustration, of fear, of pain, of suffering. We need to know that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us. God is with us. That's a promise that we must cling to. And the text goes on, verses 25 and following. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And so right here in verses 25 through 31, this is where we're talking about, this is is where what we're talking about this morning is going to come into view a little bit. Right after he promises the Spirit, what else does he promise? He promises peace. A peace that is distinct from anything this world has to offer. (laughs) That's okay. I can't help but notice that the promise of peace and the promise of the Holy Spirit are side by side. They're right there next to each other. And then he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And so the peace that we have access to as followers of Jesus, it's grounded in the presence of God in our lives, both individually and together as a family here at Redeemer. And what we're about to see in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17, is that the presence of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that extension cord that connects us to the throne room of God, is a gift that requires something of us. It requires that we abide, that we remain, that we stay in communion with Almighty God. There is a peace that is provided to us by God through the Spirit and a peace offered to us from the hands of the rulers of this world. And we have to keep asking the question that we asked at the beginning of this sermon, whose hands are in the clay? Whose hands are in the clay? Let's keep reading. Chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Very quickly, vine imagery refers to Israel all over the Old Testament, and in particular Psalm 80. The point Jesus is making is that he is the true Israel who picks up where Israel failed in holiness, faithfulness, and love, a love that was always meant to multiply and extend beyond the borders of Israel. God's presence, which is accompanied by his peace, is experienced by faith and obedience. Let's keep reading. He says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides. 
in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So this term, abide or remain, it shows up 10 times in just nine verses. And it shows up once more in verse 16. Now, I'm intentionally reading large passages of Scripture. I know I don't normally do that. I want us to get a sense of what Jesus is talking about. I want us to get a sense of the, the scope of his argument. And so let's talk a little bit about this idea of abiding or remaining. To abide or remain in Christ, or as I have come to understand it, to cultivate our relationship with Christ is to, in the words of N.T. Wright, submit ourselves to the pruner's knife, allowing him to cut away all other goals and ambitions. And as he further says, and I have a slide for this, we must remain in the community that knows and loves him and celebrates him as Lord. We can't go at it alone. And we must also remain as people of prayer and worship in our own intimate private lives. We, make, we must make sure to be in touch or in tune with Jesus, knowing him and being known by him. And the result and purpose or of this abiding or cultivation is that the joy of the Lord will fill us. That the joy of the Lord will fill us. Now what I'm doing this morning, I want to, again, make clear. Like I said, I'm reading large passages of Scripture. But what I'm trying to argue this morning is I'm trying to give you the why behind spiritual formation, the why behind the practice of spiritual disciplines and, and, and sanctification, what sanctification looks like for us in the everyday of our lives. I'm giving you the big picture so that we understand that when we start getting into the, the nitty-gritty of what it looks like over the next couple of weeks. Why do we care about spiritual formation? So that we might be people who love and so that we might be people who experience the joy of Christ. That we might experience the presence of God in our lives. That's where we're getting at this morning. That's what is the goal of where we're heading for the next two months. The text continues, verses 12 and following. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, and you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. What I find most interesting about these last few verses are the bookends of love. 
He starts in verse 12 talking about loving one another. And then he ends in verse 17 about loving one another. The entire purpose of our relationship with God, the nearness to God that we experience through his presence of the Holy Spirit is that we would be a people marked by cross-shaped love. Because the sort of love he's talking about is that agape sort of love that we've discussed over over a number of times as we went through the the passage in Philippians. It's that love that is self-sacrificial. It's the love that characterizes Jesus' cross. It's the love that's very clearly described here. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Is he not talking about what he is about to do? That's the kind of love that we are called to cultivate in our own lives individually and here together as a church so that the world might know what Christ is like, what God is like. And so, like I said in the beginning, the entire goal of spiritual formation is to create time and space for us to be with Jesus so that we become more like Jesus and do the things that Jesus did so that the world might experience the love of Christ and catch a glimpse of what God is like. That's the whole purpose of what we are about. As followers of Jesus, that's the point. Abiding or remaining in Christ, cultivating our relationship with him, is for the purpose of being with him, becoming like him from the inside out so that we can do what he did. And and what's important for us to know is that we cannot simply will ourselves to be more loving, to be more joyful, to be more any of these things. Dallas Willard says it like this, and I have a quote for this. Our aim under love is not to be loving to this person or that person or in this or that kind of situation, but to be a person possessed by love as an overall character of life. It is not something you choose to do, but something you choose to be. It's a very important distinction. It's not something we choose to do. It's something we choose to be. And this happens as we allow God through his spirit to prune and conform us to the image of his son, whose hands are in the clay. That's the question we're wrestling with this morning. What are we becoming? And what are we allowing to form us and conform us? Let's flip to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 26. It's a little bit before Philippians, um, if if you're trying to find it. And we're just going to read through the passage, starting with verse 13. He says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So really quickly, right, to be a Christian is to be freed from enslavement. But freedom does not mean we no longer bear any responsibility. And I think we live in a culture where freedom is argued that we can do whatever we'd like. We can be whatever we want to be. But that is not what freedom means. Clearly, freedom means here that we have now an opportunity and responsibility to serve one another. In fact, the freedom offered to us in Christ is a freedom that requires submission to one another in service. 
which I think is actually the Pauline definition of love. But again, this love cannot be manufactured, and it requires a spirit-produced change to our hearts, the seat of our physical, spiritual, emotional, and mental lives. He keeps going, verse 16 and following. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, enviness, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is an important section of scripture because there's, there's quite the, the, the promise here, if you will. It's a negative promise. If you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so the question of whose hands are in the clay is on full display. We're either being shaped and formed by the Spirit, or we are being shaped and formed by the ruler of this world, who knows what the flesh wants and offers it to us buffet-style. Think Lancaster, places like the Shady Maple or Miller's. If you know, then you know. And this is why Paul can say that those who do, or better, practice, whose lives are characterized by these things, such Things will not inherit the kingdom of God because such is a life whose heart has not been changed. See, what Paul is not saying, he's not saying that, that you get to heaven if you do the right things. He's saying you get to heaven or you experience eternity with Christ if your heart has truly been changed. And your heart being changed will be evidenced in how you live your life. That's what he's getting at here. And that's important for us to wrestle with. Because what I think we often want to do is, is, is say, well, if I do X, Y, and Z, then God will be pleased. But it's if I am who God has called me to be, I will do X, Y, and Z. And God is pleased with who he has made me to be. Those are very different things. The passage continues, verses 22 and following. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So I want us to remember that vine imagery from John 15. Remember that only those branches that are cultivated and abiding, that are drawing from the strength of the vine through the power and presence of the Spirit, those are the branches that produce fruit. Those are the ones. Pastor and author John Mark Homer, he observed that the fruit of the Spirit is not something that's commanded of us, but rather it's fruit which appears when proper care is given to the branch. That's important. Remember, we cannot will ourselves to love, nor can we will ourselves to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. If you are a gardener, then you fully understand everything that I'm saying. If you grow tomatoes, then you are the vine dresser. And you know that there is a particular way to prune and to water and prepare the soil if you're going to produce a delicious tomato. 
You also know that if you do nothing, and if you allow nature to serve as a substitute vine dresser, your tomato plants will become leggy and stringy. They will most likely be diseased. The plants will not have a trellis to climb. So any fruit that is produced will simply fall to the ground and rot. We've all experienced it. If you've gardened, you all had those first couple of years where the garden didn't go so well because you didn't know what you were doing. And you just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Lowe's and buy a tomato plant and we're going to feed our family for the next three months. And nothing happens. So what's next? As we draw to a close this morning, there are a few things that I hope we've come to understand or be reminded of. And remember, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing, I'm painting with, with large brushstrokes right now, trying to cast a vision for what we mean by spiritual formation, what happens in the heart, in our innermost being, the thing that controls everything we do and everything we say is something that requires something of us. It also requires something of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, which, we, which he imparts to us when we bend our knee to King Jesus. We receive the Holy Spirit. But one thing that we need to remember, and there's a few things, if you're a note-taking person, I think there's three things. The human heart or the spirit is not static. It's not static. In fact, we are being shaped and formed on a daily basis. Everything that we consume, whether it's on our phones, whether it's on TV, whether it's the news, whether it's just life that we've lived, our past, the family that we grew up in, for better, for worse, it's all shaping and forming us. Where we go to school, the friends that we have, it's all shaping and forming us. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we are going to retreat into bubbles and and not interact with the world. That's not what I'm saying. But we do need to be aware that all of those things that we experience through the body affect our heart or our spirit. But what I am saying is that there's an intentionality that we have been called to as followers of Jesus. Because spiritual formation is taking place no matter what, We have a responsibility to abide, remain, cultivate that relationship with Christ. The second thing that I think is really important for us to recognize that we discussed this morning, the things we do with our body and speak with our mouths, for better or for worse, serve as evidence for who we truly are. Now that's, that hits you. Because we all know the things that we say and do or think. And the Bible indicates that that is actually who we are. If you've lied, then you are a liar. If you sing, you're a singer. If you dance, you're a dancer. If you cook, you're a cook. I want to emphasize a major caveat here. Sinning does not mean we are no longer Christians. John makes that clear in 1 John when he says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Lord's Prayer has an entire section for the confession of sin and forgiveness of sin. So we are going to wrestle with our sinful humanity, the flesh. Remember, we are saints who speak with the accent of a sinner. But we also need to remember that what we do is who we are. And so we wrestle with that. 
Third thing I think is really important that we covered this morning. Knowing that the human heart and spirit are being shaped and formed either passively or intentionally, we must take the reins and cultivate our relationship with Christ through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we call discipleship. This is what we call spiritual formation. If we are to be conformed to the image of Christ, then we need to do the things that Jesus did. Those disciplines or habits he practiced to remain or abide in and cultivate his relationship with his heavenly Father. Jesus spent time with the Father alone. If you read through the Gospels, he's often just retreating. His disciples are like, you guys see where Jesus went? Like, I didn't see him. And where is he? He's alone with the Father. He's praying. Jesus fasted, meaning he didn't eat. He refrained from consuming food. Did it for 40 days, in fact. We're not going to do it for 40 days. And we're going to talk about fasting a little bit next week. But this is a practice or habit or discipline that Jesus did. Jesus worshipped. He worshipped alone and he worshipped with his disciples. He was a worshipper of God, of his heavenly father. It's what he did and it's what he taught his people to do. We do that on Sunday mornings. I would encourage us to do that often. In fact, it says... In Romans chapter 12, such an important verse, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What what Paul is saying there is that every single thing that we do, every single thing that we put our hand to, every single word that comes out of our mouth, every every single act that we perform with this body, is meant to be for the worship and praise of Almighty God. And now that is aspirational for sure, because we know that we're not all doing that. But my hope is that we would get closer and closer to more of our lives being like that, looking like that. And that happens as we abide in him, as we remain in him, as we cultivate our relationship with Almighty God. What happens is that our lives start to be transformed. And and, and those of you who have walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know that you are not what you once were. You know that your habits, your thoughts, your deeds look a little bit different than they maybe did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But we also know that we still struggle with the deeds of the flesh. And the goal of following Jesus is to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we might exhibit the love of Christ more fully to the world around us. Why? So that they might know Christ. So that they might see God. Remember, it's love of one another, love of God and love of neighbor that permeates that entire passage. It's the crescendo. It's the so that. Right? Whenever you see that word in the scripture, so that, what, what, what the author is trying to say is that everything I just said is for a purpose, so that you will love one another and that you might be filled with my joy. Jesus worshiped. His life was marked by worship. Everything he did was worship. And like I said, worship is not just singing songs on Sunday. It is at least that, but it is so much more. Jesus lived simply. 
meaning he wasn't driven by, by stuff. He wasn't trying to acquire things. He lived simply. He regularly rested and retreated from the busyness of his schedule. He practiced Sabbath. He got sleep. There are times where Jesus is literally, the Bible is talking about Jesus sleeping. That's wonderful. We need to get more sleep probably. We're going to talk about this stuff because what we do with the body matters. We don't believe that the soul and the body are two separate things. That's not what Christianity teaches. The body matters. What we do matters. He prayed. We saw that regularly. He served. Regularly he was serving. Constantly giving of himself for others. He lived in community and he actually submitted himself to his younger brothers and sisters, meaning his disciples. Remember, right before this, this passage in John 14 and 15, he was washing his disciples' feet, literally kneeling down and submitting himself to his disciples. When he died on the cross, he submitted himself to us. And you know why we know that? Because in Ephesians chapter 5, when it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, it talks about the, the husband's role of submission in the marriage is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. And so we know that when Jesus died on the cross, it was an act of submission to the Father and to the ones he loves. He studied and he meditated on the scriptures. He allowed his imagination to be formed by this book. And that's one of the biggest things. The prayer, the silence, the rest, the solitude, I think it sets the table so that this book, through the power of the Spirit and our intentional study and meditation of it, penetrates us and, and actually starts to recreate our minds and our hearts and our spirits and our souls so that we actually view the world differently. We view it through the lens of the story of God. What I think the problem is for so many of us is that we're viewing this world through so many faulty, broken, and foggy lenses. Through stories that are just radically different from the story that should be shaping every single thing we do. The Word of God matters. It's not just a book to memorize, although we should be doing that. But again, it's for a purpose. It's for a purpose. He studied and he meditated on the scriptures. As we close our time this morning, I want to encourage us. We are absolutely not going to do this perfectly. In fact, we are going to stumble our way through this. Remember the first time you went ice skating or roller skating. Probably wasn't a pretty sight. You tripped, you fell. Then you got out there again and you did it again. And you tripped and fell a little bit less again and again, and, and then maybe some of you just quit because you're like, roller skating and ice skating is not for me. But if you kept at it, you get to a point where you're just gliding around the rink. It starts to become second nature to who you are. That's what spiritual formation and practicing these habits and disciplines are meant to do when practiced in faith in cooperation with the Holy Spirit we start to think differently. Our wills and desires start to change. Like I said, many of you have experienced this as you've walked with Jesus for some time. 
your goals and ambitions are all of a sudden radically different from what they once were because you're submitting yourself to the pruner's knife as we talked about earlier. You are turning into a different person, a new creation. But as difficult as this is going to be, we're going to create space to practice these habits and rhythms. We're going to give you opportunities to share with one another in your community groups your experiences, both your triumphs and your challenges. If we're going to practice fasting one week, you're going to get to talk about that with your community. What was it like to fast? What was it like to not eat for an entire 24 hours? And, and we're going to talk about some people might not be able to fast because of certain health restrictions, and that's okay, and we're going to talk about that next week. But, but sharing those experiences with one another, encouraging one another, hearing and learning from one another, Oh, well, that was like for you. That's what it was like for me. Understanding the opportunity that a thing like fasting or a thing like silence and solitude gives you this opportunity to now pray and be with God in a way maybe that you never thought was possible. What is important for us to remember as we make our way through these things, whether it's fasting, reading, meditating on scripture, silence and solitude, prayer, community, hospitality, whatever, these are all means to an end. These habits or disciplines, when practiced in faith, open the door for God by his spirit to engage with us, to transform our minds and our hearts and conform us more and more into the image of Christ. These biblical practices provide an entry for God to change us from the inside out so that our lives in this world begin to resemble the life of Christ. It's how we share together in the life of Christ. And when this starts to happen, we become conduits of God's grace in the world around us. And our neighbors and our friends and our family will start to catch a glimpse of what God is like. And that's our whole purpose, that the world might see Christ. Now, truth be told, I am a fellow traveler in this journey. I have not mastered the art of walking with Jesus by no means. You can ask the people who are closest to me. And all of us have not mastered the art of walking with Jesus because it takes a lifetime of discipline and practice of submitting ourselves to God, loving him and loving one another. It takes work. Just like that ice skating takes work, takes practice. But I truly believe that God is willing to do something with us. And my hope is that those of us who are united to Christ and those of us who submit ourselves to him by faith, my hope is that this place over the next year will look different than it does today. And I think it looks great today. But my hope is that it'll look different than it does today that we will be a people marked by the love of Christ in ways that maybe we never thought we could be. That's my prayer for us as a church, that when people come into this building on a Sunday morning, that they would see something beautiful, something that looks, that looks like something maybe they've never seen before, that looks like Christ. That's my hope for us. And I, and I don't say this as as like a, a punch to the gut, because I actually believe that we, we, are, we are in a healthy place as a church. Like I really believe that. 
We've gone through a lot. And God has been faithful. And I believe we've been faithful to God. And so what I'm, what I'm talking about this morning is to continue in that faithfulness and to grow and to start transitioning from milk to solid foods. That's what my hope is for us. In fact, our goals over the next year, come the fall, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments because my goal for the fall, and, and you'll probably notice this, last fall we did the Lord's Prayer. This coming fall we're doing the Ten Commandments. Is to really dig into those foundations of the faith. We're also going to be looking at, uh, I'm going to be leading a small group Bible study, hopefully it's larger than small group, um, for about, I haven't decided on the length of time, but it's going to be a set length of time. We're going to be working through the Apostles' Creed. That's going to probably be like a midweek thing. And, and as the summer comes along, I'm going to give you more details about that. And we're going to work through the basic doctrines of the faith. What does it mean that we believe in God the Father Almighty? What does it mean that we believe in Jesus? What does it mean that we believe in the Spirit, that we uphold the Word of God? What does it mean that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, Catholic lowercase c? What does it mean? We're going to wrestle with that stuff. Because I really do believe that discipleship and spiritual formation is what the church is to be about. And in so doing, we will become those conduits of grace and so that people can see what God is like. That people might taste and see that he is good and give their lives to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the promise, Lord, that you abide in us. And so I pray that we would cultivate that relationship, Lord. That we would allow ourselves to be shaped and molded and formed by you, Lord. That we would allow your hands to be in the clay of our souls and the clay of our spirits and our hearts, Lord God. To shape us and mold us into the image of your son, Jesus. So that the world might catch a glimpse of what you're like, Lord God. When people see Jesus, they see you. And my prayer is that when people see us, they will see you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.